This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts. Squaring off on legal news and legal observations, Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And I write uh, Law.com's Legal Blog Watch and also my own blog, Law Sites, and another blog called Media Law. Craig, the, the presidential campaign has uh, once again uh, focused attention on our nation's immigration laws and policies. But among lawyers who practice immigration law, uh, much of the focus over the past week or so has been uh, on a discussion of the quality of legal representation provided in immigration cases. That's right, Bob. In the middle of February, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York issued an opinion that opened with these words, quote, with disturbing frequency, this court encounters evidence of ineffective representation by attorneys retained by immigrants seeking legal status in this country, unquote. In that case, the court rescinded the deportation of a Jamaican immigrant after finding that one law firm had erroneously told him he did not have to appear for a hearing. And then when his failure to appear resulted in a deportation order failing to tell him that he'd been deported. He then went to another lawyer who never mentioned those circumstances from involving the first firm when uh, when the second lawyer tried to get that deportation order rescinded. Uh, and the Second Circuit said that uh, a lawyer's inaccurate advice uh, provides the exceptional circumstances that may justify a reopening of the deportation case. Well, today we're going to discuss the question of quality legal representation of immigrants and why so many allege they're receiving subpar legal assistance. We're also going to speak with the experts on what they're doing to provide their clients with the best possible representation. Uh, joining us to discuss this today are three different guests. Uh, first off is uh, attorney Lisa D. Ramirez, an immigration lawyer from the law office of Lisa D. Ramirez in Santa Ana, California. Uh, Lisa focuses on deportation defense, family-based petitions, waivers, and naturalization. She's served at Catholic Charities of Orange County as the Director of Legal Services and Advocacy, and later at the Public Law Center, where she developed their legal immigration services program and worked on issues related to uh, human trafficking. She regularly volunteers her time conducting legal rights presentations in the community, uh, including having spearheaded the Orange County Bar Association's info presentation on immigration. She's a board member and past president of the Hispanic Bar Association of Orange County. She serves on the District Attorney's Hispanic Advisory Commission and has been an active member for the Orange County Bar Association's VIP program. Welcome to the show, Lisa Ramirez. Thank you, Bob. And our next guest is attorney Nora Privatera, special projects attorney for the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. She's been in private practice for over 12 years, including eight as the sole practitioner before joining the ILRC as a part-time attorney in 2000. As a private attorney, Nora has gained extensive practical experience in many areas of immigration law and has two published winning opinions concerning asylum and due process issues in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In addition, Nora is a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Northern California Chapter Committee on the Unauthorized Practice of Law and Consumer Fraud. She is also conversant in Spanish and Italian. 
and welcome to the show, Nora. Thank you very much. And finally, joining us today is Eleanor Newhoff. Eleanor is a private practice immigration lawyer in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who also works part-time for Greater Boston Legal Services. Eleanor has been practicing immigration law in Massachusetts since 1982. She's currently working at Greater Boston Legal Services, helping to coordinate that office's response to the March 2007 worksite raid at Michael Bianco Incorporated, a factory in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Attorney Newhoff was previously a clinical instructor with the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinic at Greater Boston Legal Services. And she is currently co-chair of the Massachusetts chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. Welcome to the show, Eleanor Newhoff. Thanks so much. Well, let's let's begin uh, with uh, Lisa and, and just you know ask for your kind of impressions of this overall issue of, of whether I mean is there a problem with uh, the the legal services that that immigrants are receiving in this country? Yeah, I think there most definitely is, and I also would add that it's probably not limited just to the area of immigration. But I think we see, um, you know, so much of it in immigration law because of the need that immigrants have for immigration practitioners to assist them to navigate the immigration process to legalize their status. Um, I think in addition to that, because immigration practitioners are practicing federal law, they can basically practice in any state in the United States. So someone can be practicing here in California and be licensed in Kansas. And I think one of the problems that we see is that individuals who have complaints or problems with a particular um, attorney um, cannot turn to the state bar where that person is practicing if they're licensed somewhere else because that state bar does not have jurisdiction over that individual um, to be able to discipline them or to be able to act on any um, complaint that's filed. So I think it's definitely prevalent, uh, probably more so in immigration than any other practice area, but I think it also extends to other areas as well. Nora, how about you uh, in San Francisco? What's your uh, perspective on this issue? Well, there is a significant problem with uh, immigration practice in um, in the Ninth Circuit. Um, in fact, uh, the Ninth Circuit, where we are, uh, has a has a project uh, to match pro bono attorneys um, with uh, clients who are either unrepresented or underrepresented, and that's uh, spearheaded by my organization, the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. Um, with uh, funding from various um, law firms in the Bay Area that are, um, you know, helping us get this project off the ground. We just started it in February. But it, it, it is an ongoing problem, and the Ninth Circuit has the biggest immigration caseload in the country, far greater than any other circuit, and uh, has been disturbed by the lack of competent re- representation that they've been seeing. So it is a significant issue especially for those immigrants who are facing uh, deportation issues. When it comes to um, business immigration, there's a, a much higher level of competence. Well, Lisa, it also applies, apparently, from reading the Daily Journal to some of the immigration judges. Is that, do you find that to be true as well? In terms of their competency? There certainly is a lot of criticism from the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, I mean, we have many um, immigration judges that are on the bench that have no background whatsoever in immigration law. Um, so they're not, in my opinion, you know, minimally qualified to be, you know, making decisions that, you know, determine people's, you know, future in this country, whether they should be permitted to remain, um, whether it's on an asylum claim, adjustment of status, uh, cancellation, removal, um, and they often don't have a command of the law. And so they're kind of learning as they go, and some of them are a little, you know, better about getting up to speed than others, Um, but certainly I think it is a, a great problem that we have in our in our court system. 
I just wanted to bring in Eleanor and ask a, a, one other aspect of this. Uh, you, you and I were talking offline the other day uh, in preparation for this, and, and something we were talking about is the number of uh, immigrants who are receiving legal advice, uh, if you want to call it that, from, from people who are not lawyers. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, this is the this is where the problem begins, and that is that a lot of immigrants are in a position, particularly the ones we see at Greater Boston Legal Services, they are in a position of being undocumented or their status is lapsed. They're already looking for a way to get advice which may be um, less visible, and so they will go to someone who knows someone, and that person might be a good representative who is associated with a community group or an outreach organization like Greater Boston or uh, law centers that pop up in communities that need these services, or they might be uh, a person who wants to benefit from the balance of power not being equal. And so they exploit these poor folks and then work sometimes with, with lawyers who are, who are less than ethical and simply want the money. Unfortunately, immigrants are willing and sometimes uh, will pay way beyond their means in cash, and these cash payments go towards establishing a, a, a motive for people to exploit them. So we have a, a very active underground network of people who are preying on immigrants both for representation and to to access representation and to give advice which they shouldn't be giving and the price is paid by the immigrant um, and unless it is an attorney who has entered into an agreement with the client such that we could pursue a case of ineffective assistance the person is basically without remedy unless the court will consider the circumstances under which they find themselves, either with an absentia order or in removal proceedings with an application denied which shouldn't have been denied, things like this. So in the First Circuit, we have the Lozada case is what sets the standard for a motion to uh, remove an in absentia order against a a client, uh, an immigrant, and that standard is fairly stringent. Um, I think the Second Circuit opinion actually loosens that standard a bit and makes it more possible to approach the court even after a period of time has passed or even after two people have attempted to do something for the, for the client if the facts are there which show that the representation which was provided was ineffective. And I think that that's, that's an excellent direction for things to be going. It almost sounds like the country's in need of an overhaul of its immigration system, but do we really have the uh, the interest in doing that? I think there will be, and I I, I personally think um, I think one thing that that came into my mind as we were as I was listening to Lisa and Nora is the issue of the immigration judges. I think there has been some evidence that this administration has, since these are federal appointees, has sought people who are in accordance with the same ideological view that the administration has. In other words. They have to support the Bush administration to be appointed. I'm not saying that that's the case always, but we do get people appointed to the bench who have absolutely no background, and we find ourselves in the courtroom having to almost instruct the judge in a very respectful way, which sometimes doesn't succeed. Uh, so a lot of mistakes are made, and people pay the price, such as the case of Mr. Aris, who ended up being in uh, detention for nine months. You know, you, you, I mean, we're talking about a culture in which detention is the remedy. We're, we're seeing overstays sitting in detention. 
they're not a bond eligible because the government opposes a bond on the basis that they are uh, flight risks, even though that notion is a it's, a it's a moving target. So, you know, we do need an overhaul. I think the mentality is, is, is developing to understand that we do have an immigrant community that's here that has not been able to document themselves. It's not always a choice. Sometimes the means is not there. And I think I recently saw a report, don't know whether it was the Department of Labor or some other person who said that unless we realize that we need immigrant labor, that it actually contributes to the growth of our national, gross national product, we're going to be, we're going to be in a real labor shortage situation. Well, let me ask uh, Lisa in Nora, from from their perspectives, uh, given given that we've set, kind of set the stage here and said there is this problem with legal representation and, and perhaps even with with the bench, uh, how should we be addressing it? What needs to be done? Well, I think one thing that we do need to understand um, is that the the population that we're dealing with um, are often ignorant of our legal rights here in the United States and what their options might be. The immigration law is very complex, which I think sometimes education, unfortunately, is the best thing we can offer the community because a lot of them don't, under our existing you know, immigration system, don't have any remedies available to be able to legalize their status, so at least to educate them on what the laws are, who qualifies for you know, what benefit will help them you know, not fall prey to um, these unscrupulous attorneys or notaries or immigration consultants. Um, but I think, unfortunately, because of the desperation and because of, um, you know, the, the desire to be able to have documents here in the United States to be legal, um, people are going to continue to, you know, fall prey. My big concern is if there is any legalization is that we are just going to see, you know, crooks come out of the woodworks. And we've seen it every time, whether it's been minor, you know, expansions like 245I or if it's been the amnesty in the 80s. I mean, this is the opportunity that people who've never practiced immigration law come out of the woodwork and trying to, you know, open up shop to essentially take advantage of this, quote, opportunity, which I think they perceive more as an economic opportunity. Um, I think at minimum, in terms of what I think should be done about the attorneys, um, I personally, and have been working with a number of attorneys and organizations, is to get the state bar to require, um, at least here in California, to have these attorneys that are not licensed in the state to register um, so that at least our state bar knows where they, in fact, are licensed, if they are licensed, because I think there are many out there who claim to be attorneys who are actually not, in fact, licensed, um, and to have a mechanism where complaints can be forwarded to the appropriate state bar for, for discipline. Um, I think that at, at minimum, if people would at least their complaints be heard and go into the right hands, perhaps something could be done to prevent or to punish these individuals um, from continuing the kind of work that they're doing. I'd like to, um, this is Nora, I'd like to interject a little bit too. That um, One of the big problems with our immigration system and why it needs to be overhauled is that um, once somebody gets before an immigration judge. The judge has no discretion to close their case if they've been defrauded by somebody. The judge has to proceed to a decision, and, and if the person is not qualified for any kind of relief from deportation, then they end up getting an order of deportation. And there are a lot of uh, both attorneys and non-attorneys that uh, get people into proceedings by promising them that they can become legal if they've been here 10 years and they have U.S. citizens born here. And what they do is they file a false asylum application which gets the person into proceedings before an immigration judge and then allows them to apply for something that's called cancellation of removal. But what their practitioners don't tell the clients is that it's very difficult to get this and then if you don't succeed, then you are going to be ordered to leave the country. 
And it's difficult because you have to prove that you have a parent, a spouse, or a child who's a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident. And that person, and that person only, will suffer what's called an exceptional and extremely unusual hardship if you are not permitted to stay. It's a very difficult standard to meet. This is one of the most common immigration scams. I agree with the other speakers that uh, there has to be education of the community. Our office is doing a lot in that um, regard. We're publishing uh, comic books and we're having bus signs spread out all over the San Francisco Bay Area that warns people about the dangers of immigration fraud. But the bottom line is that we have an immigration system that is fractured, that doesn't work, that is punitive and prevents people from becoming legal so that our burgeoning uh, illegal population keeps growing and we're not really doing anything to address that. Eleanor, uh, in Boston, uh, are any efforts being made to address this situation? Well, we, we've had ongoing efforts here um, in Boston for, for many, many years. Um, when I first started practicing, the immigration bar was a rather small community. We all knew each other. And when I first started practicing, we could not get anything from the immigration court. Nothing was ever granted. And it was just a pitched battle to keep people from being deported by any means possible, any legal means possible. We had the Central American Wars, and, you know, we had no real, you know, recognition of asylum as a right. I, I don't think I got asylum for anyone until, you know, into the 80s, um, you know, the end of the 80s, and, and was practicing, you know, feverishly until that time. So we've been dealing with this problem when the community began to expand, and actually when, when relief began to be granted, it was odd, but say uh, in 98, when we had the first 245I, and, you know, there were suddenly there was a whole community of practitioners, nobody really knew who they were, and little organizations would pop up. We'd have the people working at a, an institute, say, and they would learn what is done as a paralegal, and they would set themselves up with a little office. They'd even hang up a sign and, you know, and so there has been a, there has been a very active attempt here since that started happening in Massachusetts to pursue unauthorized practitioners of law and it's been done not only so that people are aware an information program but also attempts were made to have the attorney general involve themselves that that office in prosecutions uh, on the basis of fraud which was done in some cases but laconically i have to say and some of the people who would who would actually be caught you know owing clients a hundred thousand dollars they'd be ordered to pay it back and they'd set up a shingle somewhere else with a new attorney so it's kind of like it's like harvesting mushrooms during a, you know, the wet season. Um, it is a problem. I don't know how we stop it. Uh, I think that if people were able to actually have a, a, a means to obtain documented status rather than the promise, you know, the promise is something people will pay anything for, and they almost don't care who they're paying it to, so long as the promise has been made. Uh, and the way to fight this is through information, active uh, prosecutions of people who are the worst offenders, and outreach. I think outreach is really a huge help, as well as pro bono programs, please. We need that. And, you know, there are pro bono programs which are, which are coming into fruition in various parts, but here in Boston, we have a small one, and it might be possible to, and we have some organizations that provide pro, pro bono help, but the, the vast majority of the immigrant community does not have access to attorneys if they can't afford to pay. So, you know, so we have the problem. 
which is an ongoing one, that they will go to anyone they can pay money to in order to get the advice or what they feel would be the hope of getting their status. We need to take a short break. When we return, we'll hear more from our guests on what they hope to accomplish for their clients. We'll be right back. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs. J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. We're talking to attorney Lisa Ramirez, immigration lawyer from the law office of Lisa Ramirez, attorney Nora Privatera, the special projects attorney for the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, and attorney Eleanor Newhoff, a private practice immigration lawyer from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a part-time attorney for the Greater Boston Legal Services. What ways can lawyers handle things differently in order to make a difference in this mess of uh, an immigration scheme? I personally think they have to make a pro bono uh, commitment. I think that has to happen. Lisa? I would say the education is to really get out there and to educate the community on very basic principles, whether you're educating them on the law or you know, just basic things like getting documentation. A lot of these clients don't have retainer agreements, don't have receipts. Um, things have been filed in their name pro per, even though they've paid you know, thousands of dollars to this attorney to represent them. Um, so things that we can do to basically help them protect themselves because we're not going to be able to protect everyone until our laws do, in fact, change. And Nora? I agree. Um, we, we need to have a massive public outreach campaign that helps people understand that, you know, what they have to watch out for when they're going to an, uh, a, uh, someone for immigration help. That's key because prevention is so much better than what you can do for people once they've already been victimized. And uh, with respect to attorneys, um, they do need to do more pro bono work, and they do need to reach out to the community themselves as um, experts speaking to community groups about what the immigration laws entail and what people need to watch out for when they're looking for someone to help them. After uh, 911, there was a, a reshuffling of the immigration system, uh, moving components uh, around, uh, putting it within the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, has that helped or hurt uh, or, or really made no difference here? And, and are there changes that need to be made now in the law that would help address this situation? 
I think what happened when we had uh, the Department of Homeland Security become the umbrella, um, we had the, the Immigration Service actually became three different branches. They were apparently not supposed to communicate with each other because they didn't. Um, you know, getting information between offices at, at that time became extremely difficult. And, you know, there was no way to implement uh, an inquiry um, on a case that had started as removal that maybe shouldn't have because there's an application pending in USCIS. You simply had to go to court and work it all out, whereas in the past there would be communication. So I think what we had when the Department of Homeland Security became the umbrella with the separate branches, we had a lot of confusion bureaucratically as to who had jurisdiction over what. Not only that... The jurisdiction begins and ends in particular people within those branches. You'd have to have the final sign-off from, from that person. There would not be any, um, any bureaucratic power in, in anyone but that person. I think now people are beginning to communicate more. I mean, we, we're, seeing, we're seeing very strict enforcement. What they were hoping, I think, as a result of this new organization is that it would be more organized, that there would be a way to track and to keep track of cases. So, uh, you know, to some extent, I would say that is true, but I'm not, I, I think the system is frozen as a result. Um, I'd like to interject here. This is Nora. Um, September 11th and the creation of the Homeland Security Department has has created and fostered a pro-enforcement mentality, which is basically not terribly humane, and that all the money that goes into Homeland Security is geared toward enforcement, and that the rights of immigrants and their right to be treated with respect, their right to be informed, has uh, not been very robust in the last few years. And I think that's a serious problem. But the problem begins with the law itself, and that was signed in 1996. So it was pre-9-11, but it's a law that is basically a system that is hostile to immigrants, both legal and illegal. Well, you've talked about the law tying judges' hands to some extent. I mean, what changes need to be made in the law? That I mean, is it simply a matter of giving judges more discretion? Uh, would would that also help address this issue of, of the adequacy of legal representation? I mean, what what needs to be done to fix this? Well, judges need to be better trained. Um, they need to understand the law better. Um, but they also their hands are tied in various ways, and that would have to be a congressional fix. For example, if somebody is uh, late to a hearing because of a car accident, they might be ordered deported in their absence. And there are very strict criteria about whether or not you can get a case reopened in a, in a situation like that. You have to prove your own serious illness or the death of an immediate family member uh, or something equally serious. So I think that's a little bit over the top. There are circumstances in which missing a hearing should be forgiven, and the law doesn't provide for very much of that. So those are those are examples of things that can and should be changed to make the system more humane, and um, that it's a big problem because these things happen, and we're not we're not giving people uh, a rational and uh, a common sense way of addressing those things. Yeah, I think discretion. This is Lisa. I think discretion is desperately needed um, to be put back in the hands of the judges. I think so much has been taken away from them in terms of just being able to. Um, you know, weigh different factors within an individual case. I mean, the law is so restrictive in terms of what they are and are not able to do um, that, you know, it doesn't, you know, other than being educated on the law, um, you know, oftentimes it doesn't take much thinking because they're prevented from from giving a just outcome. 
And I think our society looks to the courts for justice, and I think there is so much injustice when it comes to the lives and situations of immigrants, whether they come here as asylum seekers or they, you know, enter the United States um, illegally and um, have been here for a number of years, uh, that demands justice and a, a thinking, critically thinking human being, you know, behind the robe to be able to assess the situation and to be able to rectify injustices, you know, when when possible. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, so often there's really just not, you could have the most compassionate, you know, well-educated judge on immigration law and there just simply isn't anything for them to do. So the outcome really isn't a just outcome, but it's the one that the law requires. Well, we're nearing the end of our program, so we'd like to get our guests' final thoughts and their contact information for our listeners. So, Nora, let's start with you. Can you wrap it up and, and give us your contact information, please? Um, well, I'd like to add to the comment that discretion should be um, expanded, and uh, it has been restricted in recent years, and especially in the courts of appeal, there are many there are discretionary decisions they can't review, whereas they used to be able to overturn a case for abuse of discretion. So that's one key area in which the law needs to be reformed. Well, my um, email address is nfernora, Rivetera is my last name, P-R-I-V-I-T-E-R-A, at I-L-R-C dot O-R-G, and I can be contacted there. And I would be happy to share information about what my office is doing to try to ameliorate the um, harsh effects of the immigration system we now have. Great. Thank you. And uh, let's turn to Eleanor. Uh, well, my email address is e newhoff n e w h o f f as in friendly at gbls dot org, and that's Greater Boston Legal Services. Um, we do have a website if anyone's interested in looking to see what sort of work we do, um, and I certainly would be happy to answer any questions that I could uh, that your listeners might have at that email address. Um, I personally think we're in an environment now where um, we are looking at the fact of our undocumented population being evaluated and found to be valuable, and I think that we are going to see some legislation which will wrestle with that, and I think we're going to see it in the next, this is my prediction, before the election, it's going to happen that there will be some legislation that will be passed. As far as our issue today, the unauthorized practice of law, I do think it is in, incumbent upon attorneys practicing immigration law to get out and do some know-your-rights trainings. I think those are extremely helpful. They can be done in churches, community centers, medical clinics, schools. Uh, people attend they ask questions, and as that happens, the the information becomes a little more credible. That's you know that's circulating in the community, and I do believe that the pro bono commitment is a part of what we should all be doing as attorneys. Great, thank you very much, Lisa. Let's wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information as well. Yeah, I would just echo what's you know already been said in terms of attorneys you know educating the community, and I think really coming together. The problem is overwhelming, especially for solo practitioners to take on. I mean. Clients come through our doors every day, and there's only so much we can do, you know, apart from, you know, the actual representation to address some of these bigger, um, broader problems. Um, so I re- would really encourage, um, you know, immigration practitioners who are concerned to um, to connect with um, their local immigration bar or American Immigration Lawyers Association or to begin to collectively gather other um, attorneys in their area to try to collectively address this issue um, in their community, working with the district attorney's office to try to prosecute some of these 
uh, fraud cases that uh, take place, these schemes that exist in our community. So um, I really just want to thank um, both of you for hosting this topic because I think it's a much-needed topic uh, for discussion um, and something that needs to be addressed. Uh, my contact information, I can be reached uh, by email at Lisa D. Ramirez, L-I-S-A, D as in Danielle Ramirez, all one word, at sbcglobal.net. Um, my website's in the making, um, but in the meantime, they can also reach me by phone at 714-543-5185. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your participation and your thoughts, and hopefully we'll see some change in this much-needed area that uh, really could use some significant change. Bob? I'd like to also thank our guests and uh, also remind our listeners that they can find all of our past programs as well as this one at LegalTalkNetwork.com and also on iTunes in the podcast library there. Craig, look forward to talking to you next week. Great. And that does it for Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at TheLegalTalkNetwork.com. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.